0: You're now listening to Sound Talent Media. Check out
1: more shows at SoundTalentMedia.com. Hey, what's up, everybody? I hope it's gravy in your neck of the woods. I just wanted to take a minute here and talk to you about Sinusoid. If this is your first time listening to this podcast, maybe you haven't heard about Sinusoid before. And if you have listened to this podcast before, I'm almost guaranteeing you already know about the greatness that is Sinusoid. They make cables and you probably play a guitar or some other sort of instrument, and that thing probably needs plugged into a pedal board, and that probably needs patch cables, and that probably needs another cable. You need cables in your life, so why not get cables from the best folks in the business with the 100-year warranty? And, I mean, these guys are just great, and they've been supporting the show for a long time. You can go on their website, get exactly what you need, exactly the way you need it on their custom cable builder and I can't say enough good things about it. you got to go to sinusoid.com and check it out today. Just do it already. I also want to tell you about Stringjoy. Stringjoy Guitar Strings. You probably figured that out by the name, but in case you didn't, now you know. So they are made down in Nashville, Tennessee, and I talked about this on the last spot, but I actually had the opportunity to go down there and help set up some stuff here last summer or whenever it was, and the level of care that goes into making these things is unlike anything I've ever seen. And the uh, just the, the attention to detail and the hands-on approach that, that they take down there is is really, really unique and really, really impressive. You know you're going to get a quality product. And if you're not satisfied for some reason, they will make it right. You just shoot them an email with whatever the problem is, and they will definitely take care of you. Witness it firsthand. So. Stringjoy guitar strings made in Nashville, Tennessee by another group of amazing human beings. Scott and the crew really, really care about what they're doing over there and I think if you haven't you haven't checked them out by now, please, please do. I think you'll you'll be in for a real treat. It's all I play myself these days and uh, they're some of my favorite human beings also, so please check out stringjoy.com. And where would we be without Gun Street Wiring Shop? Gun Street Wiring Shop out of Bend, Oregon. Man, look at all these. I'm just naming all the places cuz I like the places. I'm a, like a geographer or something. A geographer. I don't know. But, you know, I got to talk to you about Gun Street Wiring Shop. So, you've been playing the same old guitar for a long time or maybe, you know, you got a little cheaper instrument and it's got some kind of questionable quality wiring in it. Go to gunstreetwiringshop.com. Check out their offerings. They have high-quality harnesses that drop right into your guitar. Really easy to understand instructions. I was even able to do it, and I'm me. You know I'm not that bright. You've, you've heard, you're you heard hearing me talk right now. Clearly not a man of, of extreme intelligence. So if I was able to do it, that means you can handle it too. And Sean will help you through every step of the way. And maybe you got something crazy you want. Maybe you want something out of the box that's not on the website. He can do that too. Just uh, go ahead and email the, all the contact infos right there at gunstreetwiringshop.com and he will get you set up with exactly what you need for your instrument, and it will be sounding better and functioning better than ever. So yes, GunStreetWiringShop.com. And last, but certainly not least, I want to talk to you about Walrus Audio. Walrus Audio is sponsoring the show this week, and they just dropped a new reverb on the world, the Slow Textured Reverb. Yes, that's the name, Slow, and they've called it a textured reverb, and the demos all sound... Really, really excellent. I'm actually kind of surprised that they they went for a reaver, but it does seem to have some unique voicings and functions, and I'm uh, really excited to to try one out at some point. It's a really, really cool pedal. Walrus is making great stuff, and you'll be listening to Colt on an upcoming episode here pretty soon. But uh, if you haven't checked it out, go just type in slow, S-L-O, Walrus Audio, into Google, and I'm sure you're going to get a ton of demos and a ton of information there's a lot out there. So check out walrusaudio.com for all of the details. Okay, that's it for our sponsors this week. I just wanted to make a quick note. I don't generally, you know, put just tons and tons of personal stuff out there in the podcast in a, in a traditional way. It's not like my personal blog or anything. But this episode is pretty special. I'm a big fan of of Converge. I've listened to them for years, which is, you know, this is obviously a pretty exciting moment for me. But also, the day we recorded this, my son was born. I have a new son, so now I'm a father of two. Uh, His name's Rocky, and he was born, and everything's happy, and everything's gravy. But if you can't get a hold of me for some reason as easily as you normally would be able to, uh, that is why. I am a, I'm now a, a new father of two, and we're we're adjusting to that life, and it's everything's uh, amazing, everyone's healthy, everything's great, and we couldn't be happier or more excited about it. So, yeah, uh, my little boys, it's uh, trying to, we got almost enough to start a punk band, so <laughs> I'm uh, I'm really excited and uh, kind of giddy, if you can't tell in my voice, but that's uh, that's. That happened the same day we recorded this podcast, so it's all kind of blended together in this weird podcasting, I don't know what it is, but everything's great, so I just thought you guys might like to know that in case I'm a little bit out of touch more than I I normally am. So without further ado, here's Kurt from Converge. Hello everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Tone Mob Podcast, the show about guitar tone and people behind it. I'm your host, Blake Weiland, and with me today, I have Kurt Ballew from Converge. Hi Blake, how are you? I'm pretty splendid, how are you?
0: I'm doing well, thank you.
1: I'm, I'm really, really stoked about this, I, I mentioned this on the phone the other day, but, you know, I'm a fan, uh, and I know you get this all the time, but Aww. Jane Doe, Jane Doe changes the game, man, I'm telling you. <laughs> That well, thank, album. thank you. I appreciate that. Yeah. It's a it's just a banger in every way. I remember the first time I heard it, I was just like, What have I been missing? It's so <laughs> brutal. I love it. Yeah, I mean, that was um
0: a you know, hugely important record sort of or a life changing record for me too. I mean, I think um it was really a, a, a turning point for Converge. We had we had been through a lot of lineup changes and um we finally had a group of of people who were sort of like-minded and have the, had the same kind of direction and um, similar kind of skill sets and um, – or complementary skill sets rather and, you know, I think the, the unit, the band, the band unit really tightened up around that period of time. The, the songwriting got a lot more original and, and streamlined and a lot more song-focused and a lot less, um, you know, focused on like riffs and noises and guitar heroics and all that stuff and um, – and also the you know, the music scene that we were playing in was changing a lot around that period of time too. And I think, um, you know, because of the timing of that record as well as just like, you know, the changes that happened within the band and within our personal lives at that time, it, you know, ended up being like a really um you know, really uh, significant record in my life, and I think also like a significant record in the um the music scene that we play in.
1: Yeah. And you know, I was I was trying to describe because, you know, you know, I've got a pretty wide range of people that listen to this show from, you know, country guys to, you know, full blown death metal guys and, you know, all, all kinds of different people. And I was trying to explain to some, somebody who had never heard Converge before, like what kind of music it was. And I actually struggled with putting it in a in a kind of a genre box. But I th- I think that's a good thing. You would. How do you describe it to me? Yeah, I mean, I, w-
0: I would. agree with that. I think you know, every every generation is sort of a, a melting pot of the music that they're raised on. And and for us, we were, um, you know, we were kind of like the first MTV generation, um, and one of the one of the last generations to not be raised with the internet. Um, so we still had like a, you know, our, our music communities were really. Um, you know, strongly geographically based and not like genre based, um, which gave us a pretty diverse um, exposure to underground music in the Boston area, being it being like a college town. There was all all kinds of cool stuff going on, whether it was the Pixies or whether it was Wrathchild America or Slapshot or, you know, a little before my time, but, you know, bands like SSD and DYS and Gangrene and Jerry's kids, that kind of stuff, um, was was really intense music, and um, I mean, I, I think I found the punk stuff through through skateboarding, um, like, and and Thrasher magazine, obviously, was like for like a pre-internet age, um, was like an excellent window to underground alternative cultures for for the kind of ser- sheltered suburban kids that we were. And um, there's always like a lot of you know music news in Thrasher, and you know Jake Phelps, who just passed away, and and Mike Gitter were both from Marblehead, Massachusetts, which is pretty close to where I grew up. So there was always kind of some coverage of of boss of like the Boston underground music scene in that. So while I was reading Thrasher for skateboarding, and you know thinking about it as this sort of far away fantastical California culture, there was actually all this reference to stuff that was happening near me so kind of got involved in like the punk scene through that and um you know the the, the it being like a local thing and s- seeing that kind of stuff in person really really shaped me a lot and but yeah at the same time you know being part of the first MTV generation you know we had headbangers ball in 120 minutes and we could see you know, these bands from New York or from California or, or whatever, like the Bay Area thrash stuff was huge for us. And um, we kind of got exposure to that on Headbangers Ball. And, you know, we were too young to go to the shows, but, you know, we kind of worshipped all those videos, like, you know, the classic thrash stuff and, you know, Converge. And I think a lot of the um, – a lot of our, our peers from our demographic, our age, age group, you know, bands like Dylan Drewscape Plan, Botch, Coalesce um, and um, – also, like the the bands that Nate was in before, he was in Converge, Jesuit, and Channel, and maybe a little older than us. Band called Rorschach. We all sort of had that same, um, that same kind of like mix of punk and metal and and prog to a certain extent. You know, you hear a lot of like prog metal, like Voivod, King's X kind of stuff in Rorschach, and that was you know hugely influential on on us too. And and also being like suburban kids, we were all not all of us, but you know, a lot of us were in like. Jazz band and that kind of stuff. So we had some like I don't know, quote unquote, real music exposure. <laughs> um, <laughs> so you know, I don't know. I guess you know, we're just like, a, you know, we're a melting pot. You know, I think that that's true of pretty much any musical style and any musical genre. Like the 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 first groups of bands to do it, um, you know, are you know, they're they're aping the stuff that came bef- before it. But I guess we were we we're just not so good at aping the stuff that we really loved and. It maybe took. I think it took until Jane Doe, which is like sort of ten years into the history of my band, uh, before we were able to like find the right amalgamation of all the different influences we had, and, and before we were able to turn it into something that I think is unique.
1: So yeah, I, that's that's really very interesting that you say that because um, our backgrounds are are similar in a lot of ways. Uh, even though you're you're a little bit older than me, but I've always considered myself. I'm I'm thirty. And I I've always kind of considered my we're basically the same generation, but like my had a little more Internet in it, you know, just a touch. And uh, and and but I feel like I'm the last generation that grew up without the Internet being pervasive. Mm. And I I, too, like found a lot of bands through skateboard magazines, specifically yeah. like Slap for me. I read Slap okay. a lot. And there that that's the first exposure I had to Thrice, which as many of my listeners know, I'm a huge fan of and the first time I ever seen them they were they were in a skateboard magazine cool and and so it's like this I didn't even click that thought into my brain until you'd said that I was like wait a minute me too this is a this is interesting
0: oh yeah I think it's actually a fairly common story like I don't know if you ever listened to the turned out of punk podcast
1: I uh, no, I haven't uh, but it uh, sounds like I need to
0: it's Damien from um fucked up mm-hmm. um his uh, – it's his podcast just about um, – you know, he interviews all sorts of people from all different kind of fields of, uh, of interest who have some early connection to punk rock and um, it's always really interesting. I mean he gets like – you know, there's people from bands but also like some, some really like – you know, big time actors and comedians and stuff like that. So it's, um it's pretty, it's, it's definitely worth listening to. He's done a lot of episodes, but um, that like skateboarding connection comes up all the time in that. Cause he always, he asks everybody who comes on, like, you know, what was their, um, what was their entry point into punk music?
1: Wow. That's a, uh, that's very interesting. I guess that makes a lot of sense. There's, there's a lot of crossover in the two cultures, you know, oh, totally. and uh, it, it, they kind of have the same attitude. You know, and it um, attracts a, s- a similar breed of person, I suppose.
0: Yeah, for sure. I mean, and I think, um, in, you know, and in the, in the, the third head on that monster is um, pedal building um, or really any kind of DIY, thing, gear building or whatever it may be or furniture or, you know, booking your own tours or anything. It's just the DIY attitude um, that's uh, very much a part of skateboarding, I think, is something that is – you know very similar to the way that people approach punk rock and also very similar to the way that a lot of people approach building pedals you know the idea of like reappropriating your surroundings reappropriating what you have um or not not being satisfied with things as they are and, and trying to find a way to change them and, and tailor them to your needs and or, or remold them in your own image you know yeah. no, that- I, I grew up doing that with like it just the way that my family is but um you know, so that I think that's why, like skateboarding, and then later, you know, DIY punk stuff really clicked with me. Is just um, my my family has always been the type of people who um, just felt like nobody's going to care about something more than you are yourself. So, like, if you want to do something right, you want to have you want to do something <laughs> you want to do something right, and you also want to do something that saves some money. Um, you want to do something that's like best tailored to your own needs, then you do it yourself.
1: That's a, that's really interesting. Is that, is that a something you've kind of carried with you the whole time? Is this just like, well, I'm going to learn recording. I'm going to learn circuit design. I'm going to learn. Is this just a, been a constant in your life since you were a child?
0: Yeah, totally. I mean, like, actually my mom was like cleaning out the attic recently and she unearthed all of these, um, old notebooks of mine where I just used to design ski areas, like fantasy ski areas was, this was, this is what I did for fun as a kid. Um, I would just that's, make trail that's maps. That's not surprising. <laughs> I would like find um, topological maps of um, like existing mountains that didn't have ski areas. And then I would like design ski areas on them. know, um, so I did that. And, uh, and one of the other things she found is like – I mean I was really into D&D when I was a kid. And uh, I, we didn't, didn't really like actually sit down and do that much role playing. But we kind of used that for like a jumping off point for I guess – you know, real life LARPing and you know, we all we all everybody in my neighborhood had tree houses and we'd wage war against each other, but we'd make our own weapons. Um and like I had a wood lathe when I was like ten and I was like making swords and making crossbows and um and then, you know, when the weather was bad, we'd play inside with like lead, lead figures and like I learned Sand casting, there was this one guy, this one lead figure, We, I think it was called the Crusader, we called him the Crusader, and we looked like a Crusader, but he sucked, and we never, nobody, <laughs> and it was like the, it was like the figure that came in like the mixed lead figure kits that nobody wanted, and so we would melt, we would like make sand castings of like the good lead figures, and then melt down the Crusader and try to like recast the crusader into like some cool dragon or something like that. It would never work, but like we were trying, you know. Like, um, and I had—I guess I had the kind of the family that encouraged this, you know. Like my um, my father's a machinist, so he's like always you know making his own stuff, um, and I mean that's what he does professionally, but it's also his hobby. And um, so I kind of grew up with that, you know, just building stuff kind of attitude. We always you know did did all we did we just did all our own stuff around the house um you know I was always working I was working on cars which I hated and um and we had a fairly big big yard and um it wasn't quite like rural but um you know we had a tractor and I was doing I was always like running the rototiller or you know that kind of stuff just like you know mechanical stuff and as soon as I you know I started playing guitar like you know the first thing I would do would just like take apart the guitar and see what made it, made it work. And, you know, same thing even before that with like my skateboards, like when I got a new skateboard, then the old skateboard became like a vehicle for experimentation. Like what if I put like fins on the side of it? Or what if I cut a hole in the middle of it so I can boneless right through the middle of the deck or like what, you know, what I was just in my parents, like never stopped me from (laughs) doing these like crazy experiments with whatever stuff we had laying around. So um yeah, the this kinda this, the tinkering um instinct I think has always been in me.
1: I was gonna say, since we're in your kind of in your childhood, I, I've I've always been curious because you sound like you had a, a very similar childhood to me. And um I know when I started getting into heavier music and things as a as a teenager, my parents were a little hesitant about it. They were they were cool, they let me do my thing to an extreme degree, but they are also like a little weary of some of the, some of the bands I was listening to. And I, you know, I, as now I'm older, I'm like, Oh, I get it. Like they'd never been exposed to this stuff before. It wasn't, wasn't part of their wheelhouse. And I was wondering what your parents thought about, you know, the path that you took.
0: Yeah, it was the same for me. I mean, my parents aren't, um, aren't what I would call conservative, like politically, but they're very like sweet, nice, normal people, you know, like, you know, like leave it to Beavers family kind of style. And um, when I started getting into like fringe music, they definitely weren't really all that pleased with it and probably still don't really understand it. I do, I do remember one time I wanted to go, I wanted to go see Jane's Addiction and my mother sat me down and was like, okay, well, we need to, I need to listen to this music. And, you know, I was probably 15 or something and, you know, and I gave her the tape of nothing shocking and you know how like it doesn't happen so much anymore, but you know how bands used to like print all of the lyrics, like everything, yes. like the the wows and like if things were repeated, they would like you know repeat it each time in the lyric sheet, um, and they would put the name of the guitar player who did the solo and all. You know, it was like a very thorough lyric sheet. So uh, she decided she was going to listen to. Um, the James edition song "Ted," just admit it, which has, um, and so she's like reading along, and then she gets to like the bridge part and she just goes, "I mean, you got to imagine my mother's like June Cleaver," and then she's like, "I heard you're not going to this concert," um, and I didn't, um, <laughs> but yeah, and and also I think as I started getting into music, it was also the time that I um, it was like mid to late teens when when. Mm-hmm. All sorts of social distractions and cultural distractions start start creeping in too. And it's also it was the time for me when um, school started to be challenging. You know, I think I kind of, um, I think I got by on my intelligence for you know elementary school and, and middle school and even the beginning of high school and didn't really have to try that hard. And then. I didn't really know how to try hard when, when things started to get a little bit harder in school. And so my grades started to suffer and, and um, they, they blamed music for that. And uh, I don't think they fully came around um, on that thinking until I started actually um, earning a living doing music.
1: Was there an, I kind of a, a aha moment for them where it was like, Oh, this is a real thing that he can really do. For, like a there,
0: job, there may have been the not, then not that they've expressed to me, but um, you know, I think I think it was also it was a it was a spectrum, you know, like they started to. It went from being like resistance to acceptance to support over a period of years.
1: That makes sense. They're yeah, very a- they're very
0: supportive of me now, and and you know appreciative of what I do, and and um, really proud that you know I I, I haven't had a. I haven't had a straight job since the end of 2001. So, I mean, that's a pretty unusual, I think, in, in the music business, at least, at least in like underground music. So um, I think they're, they're pretty proud of that.
1: Yeah. And they should be, you've done, you've done good kid. You know Thanks. what I mean? <laughs> um, let's go to, I'm going to, I'm going to dive over into the the Facebook group and see about, I've got a few questions from the, from the group in there. Sure. Are we supposed to be talking about
0: gear? Well, talk well, about some
1: gear, man. supposedly this is a gear podcast, oh, but okay. in reality, I mean, because I got gear. I know you got gear. You've got some serious gear. Um, that's actually a that's actually a good thing. Let's before I get into the Facebook questions, those are a little more specific. Let's go. Let's go gear. How has right. your gear changed since I mean, I feel like and I think maybe you and I view this similarly. Jane Doe is kind of a, a major turning point. Let's just kind of start there. How has your gear taste changed from then to now?
0: Um, I think my gear taste, well, first of all, like I think there's really a few different kinds of guitar players out there. There's like there's like the the Rick Neilsons, like, you know, the, somebody who's playing a different guitar every time you see them. And then there's like the Fugazi type thing where like a band can have a career that, you know, They do a number of different albums with the exact same gear and still find a way to reinvent themselves. And I'm super appreciative of both things. I think I sort of fall more on the Rick Nielsen side of things where like I believe that tone comes from the fingers. But I also believe that um, tone is a journey. And I think I'm going to probably pretty much sound like myself, no matter what gear I'm using. So so long as it fits a certain amount of you know certain baseline of requirements. But I'm kind of always on the quest, and I'm always looking for new stuff. And I don't really think that there's a destination in that journey. I, th- I just think that I think the journey is its own reward. So you know, pretty much every tour I have some some different kind of rig. Um, and it's based on the requirements of the tour. You know, like what what songs I'm playing and. What guitar I recently bought Or you know whatever Whatever I'm excited about Or you know like this This year actually I don't know if I don't think we have A single show booked Where we're using Our own equipment um, So I have my own guitars But um, you know It's different back Like the last tour I did Was in Australia And and that country's big enough That bands who tour down there Typically fly to every single show So you're renting new backline Every single day um, So you can't really be all that particular. You almost you kind of just have to go with like really standard stuff and figure out how to make it work. And I prefer to like not have a lot of curveballs in that. Um, you know, it's cool. Like I've I've gone down there and I've had like matchless for backlines, but I've also gone down there and had like really weird, bad sounding stuff for backline too. Um, <laughs> and I'd many, rather any
1: names or anything. Yeah.
0: Well, well, no, it just maybe like a not well maintained amp or something, even if it's a good brand. Um, you know, in the cabinets, obviously, are a wild card. And, you know, the, our, our sound, our front of house engineer, he, he definitely likes consistency. So I, on this past tour, I did the unthinkable and toured with a helix. And it's great. Um, I, uh, I don't, I don't really have any fancy pedal needs when it comes to Converge. So, um, and all the, all the stuff that they have in there is, um, is is sounds good and is is adequate for what i need to do uh, it's taken me a little bit of getting used to the way that they're like looper works but um and uh, the fact that the tuner uses so much dsp that it has to that you can't like you like i i like to like run loops while tuning um but the, apparently the tuner uses so much dsp in that 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 can't happen i don't know why but anyway so you know a little little frustrating things little quirks you get used to but now like with that, and I'm all, oh, I forgot to mention, I'm also um, I'm using IRs that I made in my own studio um, for the cab sounds and that. So uh, I was able to get something that I thought sounded really good, and I, I dialed it in in my studio, um, listening on my on mic, my, um, my studio speakers, um, comparing it against other, you know, the recorded sounds of our records, and I, I was able to dial in something that I thought sounded really good, and. Um, And so it would end up working out great on this tour because, um, you know, a front of house engineer ends up getting the exact same thing every day. Like, we're just going, we're just going um, line out of the, um, of the thing right to front of house. And then I'm also going, um, I'm also going like uh, line out to power amps on stage just for some stage volume, just using JCM 900s for that. And, um, yeah, it actually sounds really great and lets me play and sound loud at any volume. And, um uh, so like the guy who did all the amp modeling for that stuff is Ben Adrian, who's like, he's a punk dude, like grew up in the hardcore scene in Indiana. And like, he plays in like noise rock bands and, um, he, he had a pedal company for years before joining line six called Ben Adrian effects. Um, the Kowloon wall bunny might be one of his uh, best known pedals, which is like a, signature pedal for that band Callenwald city that's actually he modeled the Callenwald bunny in the helix so anyway i'm I'm pretty stoked on on using this thing even though it's like it's not cool it's not fun like (laughs) i don't (laughs) like the you know the gear but you know i think what i've been one thing that's really changed a lot in me when if you want to talk about my gear evolution has been um i've been trying to like i do have that typical like gear snob tendencies in myself and i've really been trying to overcome that and i've also been trying to learn to work in a more modern way with when it comes to my studio i mean i'm actively trying to not be a luddite like i mean I, i do have a general disdain for amp modeling and for drum samples and and for um you know digital recording and digital mixing and all that stuff but i'm also like recognizing that like bands Bands don't care anymore. And I mean, some bands care, but the vast majority of bands don't care. Audiences don't give a shit at all. And record labels really don't care. Um, And it's getting much more frequent for me, even with even with older experienced musicians that started recording on tape. It's getting really common for for them to expect that I can just like, you know, do mix revisions like three weeks later or that I can just you know, quickly, like give them a guitar sound with more gain or, you know, all this stuff that a lot of modern recording engineers are doing is now becoming expected by my clients. And while I don't necessarily agree with it myself, um, I also, I don't want to be someone who's like, who's unfriendly towards my clients because, because I'm some kind of, um, you know, old recording Luddite. So, you know, I'm trying to like, you know, I'm trying to get into this like newer technology and, you know, it is, it's all engineering though, which is cool. You know, I love engineering and, um, you know, engineering is, is I think in its, in its purest form is just, you know, using technology to solve a problem, you know, whether that's like recording engineering or electrical engineering or computer science or, or whatever, and, you know, so this is what I do when I'm designing a pedal, or this is what I do when I'm designing a guitar. It's what I do when I'm mixing a record, and and I'm okay with the idea that like, you know, computer engineers have um, developed uh, software that addresses a a problem in the music industry, and in and, and now is actually starting to do it pretty well.
1: So you mentioned something like, well, you mentioned a lot of things that are really interesting in there, but. You you mentioned that you don't think bands care and I I'm curious what if you want to expand on that a little bit cuz I feel like at least the guitar circles that I run in we we really care and I know we're kind of hyper nerds um on on that sort of stuff I mean this is a gear podcast okay, community when, when
0: I said bands don't care I don't I didn't mean that bands don't care about their own sound I I meant that bands don't care how I get like when I'm when I'm recording a band they don't care what mics I'm using or they don't care like what plugins I use or like which EQ I choose, which whether it's hardware or, or software, and they don't care if I'm mixing on a console or if I'm mixing on a con or if I'm mixing in the box. Um, they care about the results. Um, now I do have the privilege of being a pretty experienced recording engineer with a lot of records under my belt, so um, you, the people are like I, I don't have to I don't have to. Do as I don't have to spend as much time can, trying to get my clients to trust me as I used to before I had um, less experience and less of a discography. Now that I have a pretty deep discography, like people are coming to me because they like work that I've done and they they sort of already trust me. So I don't, I'm not I'm not doing a lot of work to win people's trust anymore, um, which is which is a nice privilege to have. But like so you know so for people who already trust my instincts, especially they really don't care. Like, am I using a Neumann microphone or am I using like some weird, like piece of junk that I found or whatever, like that, that's, that stuff is not, is not important to them. Um, but yeah, but I mean, absolutely. Like musicians care about the equipment that they use. You know, if somebody, if someone's taken a lot of time to like put together a really killer pedal board that I'm, then they show up here and I was like, nope, we're just putting everything in Axe FX. Like, you know, obviously people are people would care about that. (laughs) Um, (laughs) Okay. And I would never, I would never know. Like the first thing I do when I'm recording a band, I, I never try to change them. Like I, uh, in fact, uh, more often than not, I have to convince them that, um, that I actually care about (laughs) their opinions. Um, Sometimes people come in with like a, Oh, you know, we like the records you've done, you know, best just, you know, we'll do what you say. And I, you know, I hate that attitude. Like I want to, I want to hear what they sound like. I want to, I want to find out what makes them unique. And uh, so, I usually, you know, I when people set up, the, you know, I ask people to bring their own gear, maybe not always cabinets, speaker cabinets, maybe not always like the you know, kick kick and toms uh, if we're trying to save on space or if they're traveling from out of state or something. But you know generally, I want to hear like, what is your sound? And is this the sound that you want, or is this the sound that you just happen to have? because, like, this is the amp you got when you were in your last band and just you never got something that was better suited to this band or, or is this really like your sound? And I try to like, you know, hone in on what is it that's cool about this, this sound and, or, you know, is it, or maybe it's not cool. Maybe I can make a couple suggestions or maybe like, I'm not convinced and maybe we run, um, you know, the amp that, they brought, but also an alternate amp at the same time. And so I have some options in mixing and, you know, all all sorts of different things can happen in the studio, but no, like uh, an individual musician's personality is super important to me. And, and kind of like why, why I do this really, the reason why I got into recording in the first place was just, I I felt like some of the engineers I was working with didn't understand or didn't care what, um, what I was trying to do with my recordings and what my musical personality was. And so I started recording just mostly actually to educate myself and, and what it took to make a record in in hopes that I would be better suited to, or better equipped to uh, explain to an engineer that I was working with what I was looking for. Um, And then just that kind of snowballed into me actually recording myself and, you know, later my friends and then later, you know, other clients.
1: So I want to slide back to, you know, you're talking about your musical personality and one of the one of the things that everybody kind of points to, and I didn't even know this until I was asking the question, um, was your use of Rickenbacker guitars on, on some of those early records. And I'm not sure if that's still the case or not, but I would, I do want to ask what drew you to that and see if it lines up with, with my theory.
0: Um, well, I haven't, I haven't recorded with Rickenbackers all that much, but I, I do, I still have a Rickenbacker 650A. It's like my home guitar and, um. I, uh, it's really different than other Rickenbackers, um, and I think that that's what, what drew me to it is that um, I have really big hands, and it's um, those guitars are like an inch and three-quarter wide at the nut, so there's extra space where like, – like if I play like an inch and 11 16 or lo- inch and five-eighths nut, then if I do some sort of like complicated voicing, then um, inevitably like my finger is going to be muting adjacent strings to the strings that I'm fretting um, un- unintentionally just because of like the the tightness of the string, and the closeness of the strings. So like the inch and three quarter wide fretboard um, I find to um, be better for my big fingers with um, with complicated voicings. I even was trying like inch and seven eighths for a little bit, but that was just a bit too wide for me. Um, so I went back to inch and three quarters and then um, I st- but you know, converge tunes to generally like C or D, and the the six fifties like a twenty four three quarter scale length, which is, in my opinion, a bit short for that tuning. So yeah. um, I I only played the Rickenbacker as my main guitar for a few years. I was typically recording with other things. Like I, I did like I recorded most of Jane Doe with this um, Guild Guild Bluesbird, um, which was a really nice guitar, and I was afraid I was going to mess it up on the road, so I. Trade, I traded it to Nate from Converge for another Rick six fifty who then he then traded it to Caleb from from Kaven who um, passed away last year. Um, but you know his family still has that guitar. So um, anyway um but so when I got rid of the Bluesbird, I realized like oh I should really get like a 25 and a half scale length. So then I built a warmuth um, that ha- like a Warmouth jazz master with a with a single humbucker and um, and a one and um, three quarter wide, um, not and and that worked out well. And having the l- the longer scale length worked better for me and better tuning stability, and a little bit more of like a snappy kind of sound. Um, and then I got hooked up with First Act, and they made me a couple of customs that w- to the same spec. Um, and then you know shortly thereafter, I started I started up making God City instruments. Like some bunch of friends of mine saw my warmoths and cause I built other warmoths in the past too. Um, a bunch of friends had seen my Warmoths and started asking me, um, if I could help them build guitars, um, just like warmeth parts or like, you know, mighty might or all parts or whatever. And, um, so I started helping out my friends build guitars and then I had like a really slow summer, um, maybe like nine, eight or nine or 10 years ago, uh, in the studio. And, you know, since my, my father's a machinist, he's got all these CNC milling machines and I was, I was, a Mechanical engineer in a form, former life, so I, I was like pretty comfortable with with um, CAD software. So you know, I decided I was just gonna make make my own guitars. Um, so I built a bunch of guitars um, back then for friends. I think I made about thirty guitars that year. Um, probably took probably took about a year to get all those done. But I started taking orders from my friends for these like custom guitars, and I think that actually circles back. Um, to a couple of questions ago which is how has my tonal taste evolved over the years and that process was actually like hugely um, uh, informative to me um, when it came to tonal taste because prior to that I had been like very diehard like all right I'm using EMG 85s and it's got to be 25.5 scale length and it's got to be inch and three quarter wide and uh, it's got to be maple and you know I had all these different things that i thought my guitars had to be and and that was just my taste and then like you know people started ordering these other guitars and they were looking for all sorts of different pickups and you know and then they had finishing tastes that were different than mine some of which were just you know i thought was insane like why would you want mother of pearl when it should clearly be parchment pickguard or like you know <laughs> all guitar players have these opinions and other guitar players think they're insane for their opinions like why would you you know why would you put a Bare knuckle in there when you could put a loller or you know whatever, um, but I started to get a lot more, I guess, um, it just a lot less opinionated actually. Or I started to see uh, the merit in all sorts of different approaches to uh, guitar sounds and but and also how and and in in running a recording studio, it's given me the other side of that where which is like I've I've gotten to learn. Uh, the merits of all sorts of different guitar playing approaches. And um, so I think that just that experience in building for other people and in recording um, other people's records has made me um, a lot less opinionated about things and more more open to different types of gear being appropriate for uh, for different applications. And I think that's why I'm just on this like, you know, never-ending never ending tone quest.
1: Well, I mean, yeah, we're all on that for sure. Yeah. <laughs> that's 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 why we're all together. That's why everyone's like, listening to this right now.
0: <laughs> do you feel like most people like have a destination that they're trying to get to? Or do you think that most people just are enjoying the journey?
1: I know for, I can't speak for everyone, but for me personally, I'm just enjoying the journey. I don't have any particular, uh, you know, next level thing I'm trying to achieve. I'm just trying to f- constantly find something new.
0: That's, I see, I see that's both. That's how I do it. I see both in my studio. I see like I see people who love tone and love that tonal journey. And I also I also see people who are frustrated by it. They feel like it's it's like a a necessary evil. Um, Like I have to I have to have good guitar tone. But like what I care about is these songs. Um, And I think both are interesting.
1: That is interesting. That's a that's a. I feel like that's entirely like personality driven rather it than, is ex, rather than experience. I think that's just that's just a mindset, and everyone is wired a little bit differently. Well, every yeah, yeah every th- band is different. Also, like
0: like I'm, was, in my band, I care about like I don't care at all about touring. I care about writing songs and I care about like sounds and all that stuff. Whereas like the other guys, it's more of like a necessary evil, <laughs> like the whole like you know writing process and you know, choosing drum heads or whatever. Like, it's just like, I gotta
1: figure this out. All right, fine. So we can go play (laughs) shows,
0: you know, they care about playing live.
1: Yeah, no, I can, I can see that. I'm, I'm wired more like you. I don't really have any interest in playing live. I'd rather just lock myself in a studio and find crazy sounds all day. I think
0: probably a lot of the listeners are like that too.
1: Yeah, I believe so. Um, I do want to touch back on something real quick. Uh, Kind of going back to the Rickenbacker question because I I don't know if you realize this or not you 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 might but a lot of people I I when I started trying to research so let me backpedal a little bit basically a couple years ago or four or five years ago at this point I got a Rickenbacker 360 okay and I got it because I wanted to do the jangly Beatles thing just because like you got to have that in the arsenal right sure and I found with like with this it doesn't really do that the way I expected it to. Mm-hmm. um and and instead i was drawn to drop tuning and playing with crazy amounts of fuzz hmm. with that guitar which i feel like is rather unusual but when i asked the question uh to to some of my listeners i and they were like well kurt he uses a rickenbacker in all those recordings and now you've just dropped the bomb that's like no he didn't
0: <laughs> well yeah i don't i i've recorded a little bit here and there with a the rickenbacker but not much but i mean i and and yeah, the Rick the Ricks the six fifties are like they're like the anti Rick Rick. Um, I mean, I do like Ricks, um, and I think the fact that they're like you know they're super responsive, like articulate kind of kind of bright tone, which can work really well with you know as as you as you as you lower your tuning, you're lowering the fundamental pitch, um, which you know a lot of speakers, both both guitar speakers, and then like when it comes to recordings the speakers that people are listening back to music on, like, they you know, they just can't reproduce that fundamental. So you're totally dependent on, like, the upper harmonics of whatever that fundamental pitch is in order to, like, you know, trick your brain into thinking that it's hearing that, that fundamental. So, you know, fuzz pedals and, like, anything that brings out the complexity of those low tones is going to... You know help help the listener of that music like whether it's the player or the or an end listener uh, it's gonna help them like perceive that like low pitch so I mean it, I think it totally makes sense that you you happened upon that combination,
1: yeah, it just was totally unexpected oh I
0: was just gonna say Uh-oh. if you listen to all like those like you know seven string eight string kind of bands, a lot of those people have like very sharp jangly tones because like once you get down that low, it things just get really muddy. And if you have like a real warm kind of sound, then, um, it, it just, yeah, it's just mud.
1: No, that makes a lot of sense. My, my seven string has very, very bright humbuckers in it and, uh, it works for that reason. Yeah. Um, before, before I get, I mean, I could just ramble all day, but before I get in trouble, I should dive back into some of those, those Facebook group questions. Um, it. so I'll pick a few of these ones. So, uh, Tyler Aldrich uh, first of all says he loves Converge and I think Thanks, this is a great Tyler. question yeah and uh, he he wants to know how you settled on balancing noise and clarity in the kind of the same sound hmm um well I think
0: one of the driving factors for me in um, in songwriting has always just been trying to trying to find stuff that's new, but, um, I don't think I'm like, I don't think I'm like that inspired in, at a very primal nature to create new stuff. But what I can, what I am is like really bad at ripping things off. So, um, if I if I try to like ape something else and then I do it in a different tuning and I hit a bunch of open strings, then maybe it doesn't sound like the thing that I'm ripping off. um, So, and if I do those, if I have, I have like, if I experiment with all sorts of different open tunings, then like a lot of that kind of noise and, um, drone stuff that goes along with whatever I'm riffing, that might be sort of unique and maybe it's got a bunch of discord nature to it or just a somber nature to it or something. I think that that, like the accidental stuff that happens in the spaces, um, is really compelling to me, whether it's like drone strings or feedback or, or whatever, um, that kind of stuff adds like an air of uniqueness to the, um, to the sound. Um,
1: yeah. Yeah. That makes sense. I could, I can hear that too in what you do. So that makes, that makes a lot more sense. So let's see. Dylan clay asks, uh, uh how, how, and if, do you approach producing uh, other bands differently versus your own?
0: Well, I think with any project, um, I am, you know, the first thing I have to think about is schedule. Um, And, you know, like with Converge, we're able to do things on a much more open-ended basis. So I can be super idealistic about how I approach it. And we can spend as much time getting takes or sounds as we want um, within reason, of course. Um, Whereas with another band, like I've got to keep things running on schedule. Um, And I also, I generally try to identify who like the, the point people are in the band. Typically a band doesn't have, like if a band has four people in it, they, there's usually like one or maybe two people that seem to really have the vision for what the record should sound like, and I and I try to f- try to find out who that person is, or if not, I try to find out what the common ground of all the people is, and then think of that common ground in the band as as my client, and just and then just constantly taking the temperature in the room as to um, what the acceptance criteria is, both for like sounds and takes and. You know, what is what what is their definition of good. And that's a big part of the reason too I, I like when bands bring their own gear and set up their rigs and I can kind of listen to to them and, and recalibrate my ears and my brain to like what you know what they think good is. And when it comes to my own band, I already I'm I'm that person. So I already sort of I already know that stuff when it comes to my band. It's there's a lot there's a lot of stuff that can go unsaid in the recording of a in the recording of a Converge record that needs to be discussed when recording another band's record. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's but it's, I mean, it really is essentially the same thing. It's like, you know, figure out how you, who your client is. Is it the band? Is it the band's audience? Is it the record label? Is it the band's manager? Is it, is it some combination of all those things? Like who, who am I trying to make happy with the result of this record? And, um, and then how do we get there and how do we get there on budget? And um, with the amount of time allotted and, and does, does something need to change in order to make that happen or do we need to raise or lower our standards or you know whatever that, that may be. But, yeah, it's a, it's always tricky um, trying to figure that, that kind of stuff out.
1: You – I have to say, you give really, really excellent answers to – Thank you. Every, all these questions. Like it's, it's almost – it's not – I wouldn't it's like say – like I've been interviewed before. Well, that's weird. It's, it's like this is not your first time or something. These are very well thought out. I like it. Um, so here's a good. I, oh, question I've got a from, script. Oh, you got a script? Wow, yeah. you, you are—you're probably secretly in this group. You've already read all these questions. That's what's uh, going on. I'm not. I'm not. I'm sorry. I know you're not. I don't. I wouldn't expect you to. You're surrounded by enough of this on a daily basis. You don't need that as well. Plus, Facebook's a whole another topic. For another I'm surrounded
0: by toddler doo doo on a daily basis. That's <laughs> <laughs> that's that's my normal right now. But someday I'll get back to. Being gear obsessed on the internet.
1: So here's a good one. Uh, Jason Fuzzmonger asks, what band you've worked with that has taken you most out of your comfort zone?
0: I hope that's his birth name.
1: It's not. I know what it is, but okay. I, I don't want to out him. Oh, and then I
0: hope it's something really
1: embarrassing. It's not. Um, it's it's very solid. Okay, cool. <laughs> but um, Fuzzmonger's way better. Yeah.
0: Uh, sorry, what was the question again?
1: Oh, yeah. What band that you've worked with that has taken you most out of your comfort zone? Ooh.
0: Um, I always, when people, I always draw a blank with like the, what's your most, what's your least, this, that kind of questions. Um, I don't, nothing's, I mean, it's funny. Like the, the, I want to be out of my comfort zone. You know, like I actively seek out projects that are out of my comfort zone. Um, and that's that to me is like the most exciting things. I mean, like I, I mean, I love making them just like a loud, aggressive, heavy record, but it, it can feel kind of boilerplate to me. Um, whereas like working with say like Chelsea Wolf or, um, like pygmy lush or actually recently i worked with this band called juna d g u n a h from chicago that are really really rad i mean they're they're a loud aggressive band so in that sense it wasn't out of my comfort zone but the um but the singer um, she's like a really great multitasker like she plays she sings and plays guitar and also operates some pedals and um but runs um, like a whole Taurus pedal rig at the same time. And they're just a two piece and she plays bass and guitar at the same time and sings at the same time. It's like really super impressive and trying to work with them. Oh, the drummer is actually really impressive too. He like builds his own drums. He brought in this really cool stave kit. Uh, But anyway, um, trying to work with her on um, dialing in that, that torus sound so that it, it fit everything really well was super interesting to me. And, you know, like there's basically, she's basically working with one octave cause she's got torus pedals. So there's a lot of like jumps from like, you know, if you want to go from a B to a C, you've got to, you know, you've got to drop down 11 semitones. Um, there's just no, there's just no way to avoid, <laughs> avoid that. Well, there is like a, there is like a, um, you know, you can page through the octaves, but it's like another button press and it's just like one more thing for her to have to do, um, which is <laughs> kind of challenging. So trying to figure out how to get like a, a well-balanced frequency response throughout like that entire octave and still have it sound like bass. I thought that was that was like an interesting challenge, which I haven't had to do all that often. Like I recently wor- worked with Russian Circles and Brian, their bass player, he uses Taurus like on a couple of parts. Um, but it's rarely by itself. Usually it's like accompanied with baritone guitar. So it's, I, I have, this is like my first time, like really having to, um, learn about, you know, how do I record a torus pedal?
1: That's, that's very, very interesting to me. I'll be really curious to listen to all that. That's, that's fascinating. Sounds...
0: I mean, I grew up on Rush, so I remember hearing like people always talk about torus pedals, uh, but I never I hadn't had much opportunity to record them.
1: Yeah, it's not something you see every day, that's for sure.
0: Yeah, um, and there's there's, also, there's always this danger of, like, deep synth stuff. We have this problem, like, recording Chelsea Wolf, too, where or, or Ben, the um, keyboard player, and or sort of Jack of All Trades guy, but mostly keyboards, like, he does a lot of synth-based stuff, and it's always, like, sort of just... He does a lot of stuff that's like 20 hertz, 30 hertz, 40 hertz. Like it's just below what – and it's like a sine wave too. So it's just like not even – it's not complex enough to have overtones that are audible in most speakers. So, But then, you know, you bump it up an octave and it sounds cartoonish. So it's, it's always like kind of challenging trying to figure out what to do with that super subby stuff. And a, a lot of like recording or mixing in particular is, um, you know – Based around low end
1: management and
0: trying to learn all the the tricks to um, to getting low end to translate well onto a record.
1: Is that is that a a big challenge? Like c- trying to get low end consistently, or is it just with certain bands doing certain yeah, things?
0: Certain. I mean, it's it's both. Sta- stable low end is really challenging. But I will say, what is a challenge is trying to um, educate my clients on just sound in general as to what will translate into onto a recording. Well, like, you know, bass players with playing with too much low end, for example. And, you know, they say that like, Oh, I like really deep bass, but you know, what you actually might like is bass without a lot of trouble. Um, they think it's deep bass, but it's actually bass without a lot of trouble or, you know, I I notice a lot of drummers will choose equipment based on durability and not tone. Like, you know, somebody comes in with like Aquarian drum heads and like, Peisty rudes or Alphas or Z Customs or something like that, then, you know, I know that they're, you know, maybe they're playing venues without PAs or they just want something that's going to like be really heavy and last forever. Or if they just want something that's really loud and that's cool, but like loud cymbals are the Achilles heel of a recording engineer. Um, Like I'm, I'm actually in the middle of working with a, working on a record right now where, um. You know the the symbols are louder in the snare mic than the snare drum is, and um, I have my assistant going in doing a bunch of like editing just to like doing this like uh, clip gain editing, just boosting up basically every snare hit, (laughs) and then I'm gonna I'm gonna reamp the snare track through a actual snare drum to try to get a little more snare sound happening and a little less symbols, because like you know symbols don't sound good in off-axis dynamic mics, you know they're meant to sound good from you know nice fancy expensive overhead so you know if you can you know, if the drummer can choose symbols that that record well that maybe aren't the most pleasing thing to play live then um you know the record will sound better and the same is true with guitar players i mean when i when i first got into playing guitar like everybody had pink charvels and like ada mp1 rack mount preamps and they all had BBE sonic maximizers fully dimed and you know the guitars sounded huge in their bedroom but like the they had a frequency response that was like masking the bass guitar and masking the cymbals once you put them in a room with a full band and so trying to impress upon people that like you know stick to your stick to your frequency range has is kind of a challenge sometimes and and also just like just volume too like you know if a guitar player dials in their amp standing in front of the amp in a room and it's loud and awesome. They get, they get pumped and then they come into the control room and listen back to it at, with mics in front of it. But at one tenth the volume, it's never going to feel as good. Um, and this, yeah, this tricks that I can do to, to sort of invoke the feeling of standing in front of a loud amp. But, um, you know, nothing is, nothing is the same as that actual, you know, a volume of moving air pushing, pushing at you. And our ears are, you know, very much nonlinear instruments. So, you know, we perceive sound differently when it's loud than than when it's quiet.
1: Yeah, that's, that's for sure. And, you know, one thing I've, I've tried to tell people before on that same subject is sometimes, and this, nobody likes to hear this. I don't even like to hear it, but it's, it's true is that sometimes bad tone is the right tone for that particular track. Oh, I have a
0: bunch of cheap amps and a bunch of cheap mics that are perfect for that stuff.
1: Yeah. It's, it's crazy. Like, I mean, I, I, I have, I have very limited experience with all this, but one particular experience in particular in, in, well, I'm repeating myself, but one particular (laughs) experience where the, the song just wasn't hitting the way I wanted it to. It just like the guitars sounded good, but there was something missing. And so I recorded this like hyper trebly nasally, uh, Chord, you know, cord work over it and like <laughs> super distorted and it sounded kind of awful in the room. But once we mic'd it up and set it in the mix, it was like, aha, now it's good. Like yeah, that's what totally. we were
0: missing, you know? Yeah. I mean, you, everything can't be, a, you know, a full full range tone. Um, actually, you know what? I just thought of a really interesting challenge. Um, speaking of full range tone, um, recently mixed, um, an author and Punisher album. I think it's been out for a few months now. And basically every sound on that record was full bandwidth, you know, all the synths, all the drums, and they're also like square wave clipped into oblivion. So trying to find some like transient in the drums and trying to find like a frequency range to focus on, on the various synths, um, was really challenging, especially because Tristan, the, um, the guy, um, he, he really put a lot of work into making everything full range and you know we worked f- on mixing the record for like for a while actually more than usual like maybe five or six days and I think we got to like day four or day five and I was like hey go back and listen to day two it just sounds so much more exciting and that was like back when I was really carving a lot of frequencies out of some of the synths in order to um, to give them their own space and he was like yeah you know what you're right like This is going to change like how I record stuff in the future, and so we ended up kind of rolling back most of the way to the way that I had the mix earlier on in the process.
1: That's really interesting. That takes a that takes a lot to kind of like sort of throw away a bunch of work, and it's like no, this is just better. It just is. Yeah, takes that's kind of almost. I mean,
0: sometimes you uh, you just got to explore a lot of a lot of things. It does things don't aren't always getting better just because you put more work into them. Sometimes they get worse and you but sometimes you you have to go down those different paths before you can become confident in your initial in your initial instincts. And a lot of producing is like that too, where like, you know, you need to try a bunch of different arrangements for a song before you are confident in your initial instinct.
1: That's well, that's good. That is the experimental nature that you have developed over the years definitely yeah. is a good thing in as far as trying to get the most out of the artists you're working with. I think. Yeah.
0: Oh, just quick plug: that author and Punisher record is awesome. Um, if you haven't heard it, you should totally check it out.
1: Oh well, there you go. I can put a link to that in the show notes, so yeah, it'll be I have there. no Everybody? idea what it's called.
0: But I'll Google. Most- <laughs> Google will find it. <laughs> it's, we'll on figure re- it out. it's on Relapse, and it's the most recent album. That it's funny. A lot enough. of times I don't, the, the records that I work on, I don't know the names of the record or the song or anything. And people are like, yeah, man, that record. And they'll just say the name of the record and not the band that'll have no idea what they're talking about.
1: Well, it makes sense. A lot of times that stuff isn't figured out at the Yeah. I mean,
0: I know that song at. is like new fast jamber or like, you know, Kevin's slow one. <laughs> you know, that, those are the song <laughs> names I know.
1: And that'll always be Kevin slow one to you for always. sure. Yeah. So a couple uh last questions before we wrap up the, the main portion of the interview here. Okay. And these are the, these are kind of the, the standards we're trying to make these, the standards for, for the podcast. Mm. And, okay. and, and this might, this one might turn into a two parter, so we'll see. But what is your favorite boss pedal?
0: Uh, NS2.
1: Oh, really? I did not see that one coming. The NS2.
0: Yeah, it's an awesome pedal. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah, well, because NS two has has the um, the send and return on it. Um, so I always run distortion pedals in the loop of my of my gate because then um, and I run my gate as like the well after the tuner it's the first thing in the chain. Um, so the gating action it's like a side chain in the studio where it like basically like the gating action is keyed off of the incoming guitar signal the sort of the full dynamic range of the incoming guitar signal and then the um but then the actual gating happens on whatever's in the loop um so it can it'll it'll gate all the hiss for whatever um distortion pedal that i have in the uh in the loop and i don't there's not a lot of other pedals that that have that feature i think maybe there's like an ehx one i can't remember what it's called um or maybe it's a it's one of the big companies. It might be a Dunlop. Um, maybe name, a TC. The, sorry, what?
1: Maybe a TC electronic? I don't pedal? think I, a, I
0: don't think it's a TC. I could be wrong, but um there's not a there's not a lot of um noise gates with, with um with a with a loop.
1: Well there you go. That was a that was a hot tip. I didn't I did not know that about the NSC. I mean all, I didn't know that's how you ran it either.
0: Boss pedal, all boss pedals are awesome. Um well not all of them, but all most of them are awesome and you know, they have awesome engineering. Um But yeah, that's, that's like, that's my desert Ion boss pedal and probably the only boss pedal that's on my, no, PS2. Those, those are the only boss pedals that are on my analog pedal board right now.
1: I love the BF2. It's so, so good.
0: I don't understand why every time boss does a, does like a pitch pedal, they make it a completely different pedal.
1: I I don't understand a lot of things that they do, if I'm being perfectly honest, yeah. but they are, they are awesome, but there's definitely some head scratchers, uh, with boss for, for sure.
0: Yeah. But anyway,
1: so this is the last one and this is okay. the, this is like kind of the most important question is what, what everyone wants to know. What kind of pizza do you like?
0: Well, um. I, I'm a vegan, so that already puts me in the, uh, the non-standard pizza world. Um, and I am an East coast person. Um, but the, um, you know, being, being a vegan, like I've got to put like crust and sauce are like of supreme importance to me. Um, you know, more so than, than cheese. I definitely don't want a vegan pizza with like a vegan cheese shield on it. Um, so I I do tend to go for more like hippie kind of pizzas like brick oven style things and I like a sweet tomato but I don't want any sugar in my sauce. Um there's a real common thing around here. Do you know about do you know about beach pie? No, I don't. Tell okay. me more. So beach pie is like a it's like ex, as far as I know it's exclusively like a North Shore Massachusetts thing. Um and it's based on two competing pizza places that I think are both in Salisbury Beach, Massachusetts, which is not too far from me. I've never been to either of them, but there's like these these like beach pie like clone places all over the all over the North Shore. Um, and the deal with beach pie is um, it's just a slab pizza. It's cut in it's cut in squares, so there's no there's no like edge crust. And but the but the big thing is that the sauce has grape jelly in it.
1: Whoa whoa, 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 whoa. Grape jelly. Grape in jelly. Pizza sauce? Yeah. That sounds crazy.
0: I think it's insane. Um, I don't I don't um subscribe to that pizza mentality, but um, uh, you know, I I realize already uh with my with my diet, I'm already a pizza weirdo, so I'm okay if somebody else likes it. I'm fine with pineapple like I know people love to debate that I'm fine with it. I don't I don't get angry if someone's not fine with it. This um, podcast
1: is over. I'm yeah.
0: sorry. <laughs> I don't get I don't get angry about pizza. Um, do you know do you know a man named Nick Sherman? I I don't. Nick Sherman is a is a as is is an acquaintance of mine um, and he is a he's in he's in New York and he does something called Pizza Month where um, I forget which month of the year it is but he's been doing it for a more than a decade now i think uh where he eats nothing but pizza for an entire month and he never repeats a pizza place so he lives in brooklyn he lives in brooklyn so he can do this um he gets like news coverage and stuff about this like he'll he'll have like a smoothie once a day just for some nutrition but he will eat nothing but pizza and like one smoothie a day and then pizza only and every single slice he eats or every single meal he eats has to be from a different pizza place.
1: I could over the so entire get month. on board. I could so get on board with this <laughs> in such a big way. I love this idea. Yeah. I hope it's in August because I'll be in New York in August. Well, and uh, you can find it. <laughs> I
0: don't actually, I think he's just Nick Sherman on Instagram, but anyway, look, look him up. He's like Sherman, like Sherman tank. Um, he's, uh, he's a cool dude. He likes pizza. Um, oh man. Will do. Yeah. So uh, yeah. So pizza good. Oh, I should also mention um, I, I have I live in an older colonial house um, from, built in 1849. And, you know, back in the days before they had, you know, electric or gas ovens in the house. So I had a beehive oven. So I actually have a uh, brick oven in my house that I have used to cook pizza in and um, brick oven, I think is that's like the way to go for me. I like, I like big crust bubbles um, and I like a little, I like a little char, like a chewy, I like a chewy crust. Like I don't like a cracker crust. Um, And uh, yeah, so that's, that's good. We've got a lot of good brick, brick oven pizza places around here.
1: I'm a crust bubble fan too. I'm definitely pro crust bubble. I've seen, I've seen people get, get a little bit up in arms about that too. They don't like crust bubbles some people. And I'm I don't I can't relate to that. I love a good bubble.
0: Well, you know, I like I try to appreciate low gain fuzzes and high gain fuzzes and active pickups and you know, g- passive gold foil pickups, all that stuff, you know. I like all kinds of pizza. I like deep dish. I like thin crust. I like I like bubbly crust. I like beer crust. Um you ever get you ever get into beer crust?
1: Oh yeah. Yeah. I have some beer crust. Yeah, yeah th- beer there's crust definitely cool. some some beer crust around here. Yeah, not as common as you would think for me being in Portland, but still, it, it's definitely exists. I don't have a lot of
0: Portland pizza experience, but um, I, th- I think the the Sizzle Pie makes good vegan pizza. I'll, I'll eat that once in a while.
1: Sizzle Pie is not half bad. If you're in town, we'll 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 find you some spots. All right, sounds good spots. to me. All right, man. Well, well, go ahead and wrap this portion up. Uh, just real quick before we sign off, is there anything? You want to plug, say, dude? Oh, dude! Et I got pl-
0: I got plugs.
1: Plug, please plug.
0: <laughs> well, so in addition to being a musician and a um, recording studio owner, I also am involved in a bunch of products. Um, so I have God City Instruments, which is um, makes. I've i made guitars. I've made snare drums. I'm not actively pursuing that right now, but I've got pedals, and um, you may have heard of my business card thing, which is called oh, Brutus yeah. Junior. Yeah, that was like that was like a weird like. I intended to just make a few of those to like hand, hand out to people like you when I met them. And, and then like, I don't know, a lot of people wanted it. So I ended up, um, but I wasn't really able to get them to all these people. So I ended up started started selling them, um, on, the, on my death wish e-store. Um, and I've sold like a ton of those things. So I feel like there's some real interest in that. So I'm actually going to do a bunch more DIY PCB product, uh, projects and actually expecting a bunch of PCBs to come in tomorrow. I just got to like work on the, e-store thing. And then, um, I'm going to start launching, um, more DIY products. I also have a, um, a fully assembled, highly refined version of that, uh, Brutalist Jr. thing called the BJR, which is, um, due to come out shortly. Um, I've, I just actually approved the, um, a, I'm having contract manufacturing do it. And I just approved the, um, the final proof of that pedal so it won't be too much longer before that thing's ready for um the commercial market so i'm super stoked on that i have a ton of other designs in the pipe um and got to see how this thing does first but um like like typical engineer i'm like way more um creation minded and not very business minded so i'm like i'm not really good at like i actually have a ton of prototypes that i want to put on reverb too but i just haven't got around to it i'm great at selling things, um, but I love designing things, and I love that R&D process. So I have a whole bunch of R&D stuff going on. Um, and uh, let's see, what else did I want to plug? Um, additionally, I have some, uh, in the recording side of things, I've got some cool, i um, got a couple of cool um, educational things that you can check out. Um, I have two classes that I've taught through creativelive.com. Um, sort of three days worth of um, worth of source material. If you want to learn about how I do how I approach recording, you can check out those classes on CreativeLive.com. Uh, I've also done a similar thing to that where I mix a converge song for URM Academy. They have a um, they have a, a program called Nail the Mix. So I did that. So you can check that that out on their site as well. Um, I also have a drum virtual instrument that is released by Room Sound. It's called the Kurt Belou Signature Series. So it's a bunch of drum samples that were recorded in my in my live room with my drum set. But it's um, it's sort of similar to like the TuneTrack stuff, where it's actually like a whole uh, virtual instrument environment with with um, mixing tools and all that stuff inside. And uh, yeah, so there's that. And what other plugs? Oh, I should also just plug some other things that I'm using these days that I have endorsements from: Lawler pickups. The Dario strings, Marshall amps, uh, positive grid bias amp. Um, yeah, I don't know. All right. That, that's enough plugs. I hate, I hate, <laughs> I hate being a businessman, but you know, you
1: kind of have to. Hey, it's uh you got commercials lucky. too. It's true. I do have, <laughs> I do have commercials. I do have commercials. Um, but, but I wouldn't, so like, many I wouldn't plug
0: something if I didn't like, if I didn't believe in it.
1: No, I hear that. I definitely I definitely feel the same way. it's like uh, I've been approached by some sponsors before that I'm just like it's not a good fit, you know yeah I mean <laughs> I actually I
0: just turned one down last week um yeah, and yeah, but i'm only gonna I'm only gonna back something if i if I back it you know,
1: yeah, for sure, for sure, well, thanks so much for coming on this sure. was a, a ton of fun for me. I'd love to do it again if you're ever down and yeah, yeah that'd if you' if you're in Portland. Uh, Yeah, I mean,
0: I seem to come come through every every year or two.
1: Cool. Keep me in the loop. Sounds good. All right, everybody. For Kurt, this is Blake. And as always, folks, good luck and good tones. There we go. That was exciting. And you might be uh, into the idea that we were just getting warmed up at that point. Yeah, there's a whole bunch more on Patreon. Kurt stuck around and hung out with me for a little while longer, and we chatted about more stuff. And I uh, hate to say it, but I feel like the conversation only got better from there. So if that is something you would like is a, a little more of those type of talks. And I think we're currently sitting at like 40. This will be 41 episodes, I believe, over there on Patreon. So there's, yeah, another 40 plus episodes that you can listen to and check out if that is your cup of tea. And it's just $5 a month. So $5 a month is going to get you extra episodes, and there's a couple other levels with some uh, varying rewards, including one with some discounts from some of our favorite builders and companies. So that's kind of cool. And then, uh, yeah, if you go to patreon.com slash tonemob, you can see all that and you can listen to the rest of this conversation if you so choose. And like I said, it's just $5 a month. It's not a, it's not a whole lot in the grand scheme of things, and I do try to put out as much stuff over there as I can for those uh, very special people. So thank you all very much for tuning in. If you have any questions or anything you need from me, feel free to shoot a, a message to info at tonewob.com or hit me up on any of the socials. And if you could subscribe and like and comment and you know leave a review on this thing, uh it, it all helps and it's all very, 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 very much appreciated. Could not do this without you. So yeah, stay tuned and don't forget about our monthly giveaway. So we're still doing that, and I'm still picking what pedal we're gonna do this month, or whatever object it happens to be. So yeah, give me uh give me a little bit of time, but make sure you're subscribed to the newsletter so you can be eligible for all that. All right. Uh, that's all I have. So I'll talk to you next week. Bye, folks. One last thing before we totally sign off here. I just want to remind you that if you do any shopping at Stringjoy, that's Stringjoy Guitar Strings, made in Nashville, that will help me out as well. As I've said for years, I'm heavily involved in that company, and I really do think they're making the best products on the market. So if you would like to try custom strings,